Hello everyone and welcome back to Indiactive Site, the podcast where you meet the brightest minds in the fields of biocatalysis and biotransformations. My name is Christoph Winkler and I present this podcast together with my colleague Matthias Pickel. We are both scientists in the Elk Green Graz who will host the upcoming Biotrans 2021 conference. Well, welcome everyone again and thanks for listening to Indiactive Site again. Today, Uh, we have a very special guest in the active side, Professor Kurt Faber from the University of Graz, who is the founder of the Elk Crew. Kurt, you are a special guest for two reasons. First, you were both my and Matthias' PhD supervisor, so we know each other for quite some time already. And then, you are the winner of the Biotrans Senior Award uh, this year. So, congratulations uh, on this well-deserved award and welcome to our podcast. Hello. Thanks for the wishes. Uh, I must admit I didn't do too much. It was uh, the credit goes to my co-workers. Also welcome uh, to my colleague and co-host Matthias Pickel. Hi Matthias. So what are the questions you always wanted to ask Kurt but never did? It is great to be here again Christoph. Well lots of questions come to my mind but let's start with Kurt's uh, astonishing CV. So Kurt I guess I do not need to introduce you to our community and I expect that we will hear details about the many papers and patents that you published and the many students you supervised during the award ceremony at the Biotrans meeting. So let's just start at the beginning. I found it interesting that your academic career started with studies of the piano and organ at the Mozarteum in Salzburg. You then switched to studying chemistry at the University of Graz. What was your motivation behind this switch? Well, uh, during high school and a little later on, from age 14 to 20, I studied piano and organ. Um, I was not a bad player, but uh, during the last year I met Friedrich Gulda, who told me frankly that I would be a nice piano player, but not a pianist. And then I kind of... Uh, switched to plan B, which was chemistry, because I was always interested in where do things come from, how are they converted, and where do they end up. And uh, I finished chemistry. You did your PhD at the University of Graz with Professor Thomas Kappe on the synthesis of heterocycles, so no biocatalysis yet. After a research stay in Canada, you moved to the Graz University of technology as research scientist with Professor Herfried Kringel. Was this the time when you first used enzymes for synthesis? Tell us about the beginnings of biocatalysis in Graz. Well, um, my PhD I was concerning heterocyclic chemistry, um, no chirality, kind of boring to be honest. I went to Canada, I did natural product synthesis, I learned a lot of novel techniques which were not available in Austria at that time. And when I returned, I was kind of lucky because in the mid-1980s, AIDS occurred as a kind of pandemic, a, a situation which we have actually in a similar way just now. And at that time, there was a desperate need for antiviral agents. Uh, one of these are carbocyclic nucleoside antiviral analogs like uh, abacavir, carbovir, aristomycin and so on. And uh, it was actually quite challenging to make these. And uh, 
we tried for more than a year everything, azymatic synthesis, azymatic catalysis, uh, starting from the chiral pool, nothing worked. And our last kind of uh, desperate attempt was by why not take an enzyme? In the mid-80s, this was a very crazy idea, but we were so desperate and we took a lipase and we could make a central building block for the synthesis. It worked like hell. And that was the beginning of biocatalysis. That's very awesome. Um, so before becoming a full professor at the University of Graz, you did several research stays abroad. We already mentioned your postdoc in Canada, but you were also a visiting scientist in Tokyo with Professor Ono, in Exeter with Professor Roberts, in Trondheim and Stockholm with Professor Beckwall. How did these research stays impact your career? Also, as Christoph and I, we both experienced the way you managed your own group. How did this experience abroad influence your management style? Uh, well, I like Austria, but when I stay for too long, I get a little bored. Austria is a nice country, but it's very conservative. So I kind of had to leave Austria for some time, return, leave, return, and so on. And uh, during these visits, I, m I met a couple of very interesting people. Uh, one of the most interesting pioneers in biocatalysis was Stanley Roberts from the University of Exeter. Um, later on, I moved to Japan. Uh, I worked with Masaji Ono and I learned the differences in how you run the group. And uh, my preference is to have a very flat hierarchy. Um, I especially like Scandinavia for the egalitarian society. And I learned what you can do right or wrong. I met a couple of uh, group leaders who lost the ability to listen. And I, to their co-workers, and I promised I try never to lose my ability to listen to co-workers and uh, to keep a very flat hierarchy. One achievement that accompanied you throughout your career is your book, Transformations in Organic Chemistry. The first edition was released in 1992, the year when you were appointed assistant professor, and the most recent seventh edition was released 2018. What was the influence of this book on your career? Also, share with us one of the stories about the pirate copies uh, of your book that you found all over the world. Uh, well, the, the origin of my book is, is a kind of strange story. Because uh, there was a lipase conference at the University of Warwick in 91, organized by David Kraut. And uh, during the conference, we kind of speculated that one should write a book about biotransformations. And uh, David kind of had in mind to write the book. Uh, at that time, he was a senior of me. And I offered him a handful of handwritten notes, which I had from my biotransformation lecture at the TU Graz. And I offered him to use this material as a kind of collection of ideas. But then he turned the argument around and he, uh, he, he um, told openly at the conference that 
Kurt Faber will write the book on biotransformations. <laughs> so I said this was not the argument, but um, it, was, it was kind of strange. So I was put into the role of writing a book where I hesitated a lot in the beginning because I'm not a native speaker and I, I'm a sole author. So I didn't have a kind of partner to avoid mistakes. And a short while after, the rumors spread around in the community and I met Brian Jones from the University of Toronto, another hero of uh, bi early biotransformations. And uh, uh, he, he said, oh, I heard the rumor that you're writing a book. And I said, well, keep your expectations low because I have no idea if it's going to be a success. And he said, it's going to change your world. It's going to change your career and your life. And in the end, actually, he was correct. Uh, I finished the book. The first edition came out in 92. And then shortly afterwards, I was invited to Trondheim, Norway, to teach biotransformations. The good news about is that I was forced to read about enzymes, which I did not have in mind before. Because if you write the book, the book has to be kind of complete. So I was forced to read about areas where I had no idea. It broadened my horizon dramatically. Well, that's a nice story and I'm pretty sure it uh, changed a lot. I myself remember when I traveled India, I found a pirate copy of your book in one of the bookshops I just entered by coincidence. So it was quite fun to find my supervisor, PhD supervisor, even in India. Um, could let's switch a bit to science. You started working with uh, biocatalysts at a time where gene synthesis and sequencing were just not affordable. So what were the sources of biocatalysts in the beginning of your career? And how did that change over time? Uh, well, in the beginning, um, the field of biotransformation was like a little gold rush. Everybody got crazy. Uh, nobody knew uh, about the potential and uh, the expectations were high. So the knowledge was low. Uh, it was like a gold rush. In the beginning, everybody used uh, technical grade crude enzymes, uh, which were prepared by industry, but not for biotransformations, uh, but mainly for the uh, improvement of food, uh, for detergent use and uh, for the tanning industry. And uh, these were mainly lipases <coughs> and proteases. Uh, produced on a large um, amount, a large scale, and uh, these companies, of course these enzymes were dirty. Sometimes there were more than 20 proteins in it. Sometimes the protein content was very low, just a few percent, and the rest was uh, remaining stuff from the fermentation. This was the beginning, and uh, lipases and proteases actually started the drive in biotransformations. Now, uh, with these enzymes, you only can hydrolyze amide and ester bonds. And when this field was kind of saturated, everybody was looking into other activities. And the next uh, step was um, taking slaughter waste. 
because uh, in our culture uh, we uh, prepare and uh, we produce a lot of animals, pigs, cows, and uh, there is a lot of slaughter waste like uh, liver, uh, pancreas, kidney and so on. And these organs are kind of thrown away and they contain a lot of enzymes. So people started to prepare crude extracts from pancreas and uh, they produced lots of uh, dehydrogenases, uh, mainly hydrolases. That was the next kind of step. After that, um, in order to uh, catalyze more complex reactions like hydrolysis of epoxides and nitriles, uh, people, uh, and among many other people, uh, we started to grow our own microorganisms, mainly bacteria, fungi, and we used the lyophilized cells uh, to hydrolyze epoxides, nitriles, all kinds of reactions. Um, dehalogenation, for instance. Um, and after a couple of uh, years, we learned how to predict what kind of organism would have a chance to do this and that reaction. Uh, so we went into the microbiology literature and looked for the circumstances where and how an organism was uh, isolated. For instance, uh, I brought a bacterium back from uh, Norway, which was isolated in the tank of uh, a public transportation bus uh, where it was metabolizing uh, diesel. We had another organism which was isolated uh, from a chemical factory in uh, Ireland. It was metabolizing a side product from the uh, an aromatic nitrile, a side product from a chemical synthesis. And these organisms have a very strong survival force and the strong secondary metabolism. So this was actually um, a, a very prosper uh, um, a prosperous field for a couple of years. And then of course um, gene synthesis moved in and now everything has changed. We are much more exact. Yeah, uh, being a scientist in biocatalysis uh, bio who was trained nowadays, it's quite hard for me to, to imagine that before I start a biotransformation, I have to grind up some liver. <laughs> but yeah, in, uh, it's quite interesting. What is the start of our field? Um, Could in your career, you had many successful projects and probably also projects that didn't go as well as planned. I would be quite interesting in your experience, how much luck there is involved in research. Also, did you ever come across a great result or a new reactivity, reactivity just by chance, without any planning? Uh, well, looking backwards, um, I think about success is composed of about one third of logic planning. And of course, if that works out, then the project is uh, finished in a short time. But the result is then obvious because you could plan beforehand. So one third of logic planning makes sense. Uh, one third of broad, of broad knowledge also helps you because chance favors the prepared mind. 
And if something goes wrong, you could turn this that you can turn the failure into a success. And one third actually is pure chance. You have to be lucky. Uh, it always helps to read old papers because your competitors are usually reading the papers which are published during the, let's say, last five to 10 years. If you take papers from the 1960s, 1970s, actually nobody reads them anymore. And you can find treasures, really good ideas, where people have observed some side reactions, but at the time of the 1960s, 70s, they were not able to analyze the outcome because there was very little GC, there was no HPLC and so on. So keep your eyes open for the unexpected is, is actually a part of our success in our group. We had the, you asked me for the, for the most kind of memorable project and that was a kind of crazy uh, story. Um, I moved to Trondheim in 92 and uh, I had time on the sabbatical to start thinking about the really complex story. At that time, everybody took a racimate and performed kinetic resolution and uh, basically nobody mentioned the fate of the unwanted stereoisomer. Now, I have always been very close uh, listening to industry and everybody told me that this is not going to be the success. You have to convert both enantiomers of a racemate into a single stereoisomeric product. That's the challenge. So I dreamed of a pair of enzymes which could convert two enantiomers in a stereodivergent fashion, yielding the same enantiomeric product. And that brought me into the alkyl sulfatases. I started in 92, reading a lot. In 2002, 10 years later, we managed the inverting alkyl sulfatase. Then uh, three years later, we managed the retaining alkyl sulfatase. In 2012, we had the structure and the mechanism of this enzyme. And then in 2013, we had the enantiomer conversion process. Uh, altogether, it took me 20 years. And the PhD student who finished that, Markus Schober, he mentioned that uh, the person who devises such a long time project cannot be very normal. Um, actually, he's maybe quite right. Um, moving from the past to the future, Throughout your career, you have witnessed and contributed to several trends in biocatalysis and experienced uh, how the field changes when a new technology becomes available to everyone. So what are your thoughts on the future of our field? What topics will be popular? What problems in our society need to be solved, maybe using biocatalysis? Hmm. Broad question, broad answer. Uh, in the past, we have managed to recycle a handful of cofactors quite efficiently, even on the industrial ton scale. There are many more reactions which depend on the sensitive and the recyclable cofactor, where we have to put some effort into it. 
like uh, ATP recycling works, but we could do better. Um, some recycling for methyl transfer would be important. There are very interesting uh, attempts, but in order to make this uh, working on the kilogram scale, we have to do better. Uh, coenzyme A for acyl transfer is very important. And then of course cobalamin for alkyl transfer, biotin for the transfer of carbon dioxide, then tetrahydrofolate for the transfer of uh, C1 units, and of course also the PAPS cofactor for sulfate transfer. I think we shall see in the next couple of years, we shall see success in the recycling of these uh, difficult cofactors. Another field where we have uh, seen tremendous advances is um, the cascades. Uh, in the late uh, 1980s, when you used uh, two enzymes in one pot for nicotinamide recycling, this was actually called the cascade and everybody was fascinated that this works. Uh, the, the seminal work by Van Drey and Kula, this is now performed on industrial scale. And now, uh, if you think about the, the, the Merck synthesis of Isla Travir, five enzymes plus four helper enzymes makes nine enzymes in a single pot. And it works on the kilogram scale. Um, I think the cascade field will merge soon uh, with uh, artificial metabolism in order to kind of create non-natural compounds by uh, putting together parts of the natural metabolism with additional enzymes. Uh, this has been uh, called by one colleague from Stuttgart metabolic pruning, which means you have a big tree of synthesis and you put on some branches where you can grow fruits which are basically not originating from the big tree. I think this is going to work in the next couple of years. What uh, we also see currently and we probably see more of that is uh, the prediction of protein structure and activity. Um, I think the strength of organic synthesis is that we know about the reaction mechanisms quite in detail. And uh, so we know about the transition state and in order to create a stabilizing protein for the transition state, which by definition would act as a catalyst for this reaction. Uh, modern biocomputing helps us to find proteins where the annotation is either wrong or we don't know what the protein is doing. And in order to avoid uh, tedious trial and error processes, simply to try out many proteins, I think we can limit the number of proteins for a given dream reaction by uh, computational sciences. Um, the big problem of carbon dioxide global warming is I don't believe that 
carboxylation reactions will help us. Carboxylation, biocatalytic carboxylation, is a nice equivalent um, mild conditions of the Kolbe-Schmidt reaction. Uh, we have uh, better regioselectivities, probably also stereoselectivities. And uh, biocatalytic carboxylation will definitely help us to create carboxylic acids in a more um, mild and better manner, more selective fashion. But if you look into the numbers, we convert 10 gigatons of carbon into the atmosphere annually today in the form of carbon dioxide. Only 5 to 9 percent of uh, the carbon which we dig out from non-renewable resources such as oil, coal and gas, only a minor fraction goes into organic chemicals. The remainder is simply uselessly burned to create energy. We would, in order to convert this process back to reduce 10 gigatons of carbon from carbon dioxide, we would need at least the same amount of energy which we take out. Um, today, I cannot conceive, think of any process which could do that. We will definitely see carboxylation as a niche application, but not in order to kind of solve the problem of global warming. Um, currently, there is a big drive again, like in the mid-80s, for novel antiviral drugs. When you think of the COVID pandemic, um, so far red biotechnology made the race. Uh, vaccines are doing the job and vaccines probably will be the solution to it. I can imagine that biocatalysis might play a role in the production of non-natural nucleosides which are used as building blocks for RNA synthesis, possibly also later on DNA synthesis. But in this case, we would produce the building blocks. Uh, the vaccines would be produced by uh, red biotechnology means so far. And uh, the COVID pandemic will not be the last one. If uh, you read uh, the book Spillover by David Kwamen, uh, you find out that uh, from 1960 to, to date, 11 zoonotic pandemics occurred over a kind of regular periods of six years each, which means that the next zoonotic viral pandemic is kind of due in, let's say, four to five, maybe six years. So this will be a constant threat for mankind. Well, what I take from this is that biocatalysis can at least uh, be part of the solution, but it will not be the entire solution for the problems that we face uh, as humanity. humanity. Um, yeah, for the next question, I would like to move a bit away from science. Uh, we have here a copy of the program of the very first Biotrans conference that was held here in Graz almost 30 years ago. And in there it says, Kurt Faber, secretary. 
So it seems that back then you had a role that is similar to my role in the, uh, this year's meeting. Um, well, good. What do you still remember from this conference? So from the conference in Graz itself, but also from the organization work back then? And uh, also I would be interested in uh, your point of view. What role did the Biotrans series play for the community over the last decades? The, the history of Biotrans uh, conferences actually dates back to 1991. Uh, there was one conference held in uh, the Netherlands with a very limited number of participants and another one on the at the east coast of the states but they were kind of isolated so uh, when I came back from these conferences we had the idea of starting a big international conference and that was the idea of the the, the foundation of the biotrends in 93 um, well at the time we had very limited computer assistance uh, because uh, there was, uh, I think the first version of Windows was out, which crashed uh, within 10 minutes. So we had a lot of paperwork, a lot of phone calls, lots of telefaxes at that time. And uh, we were surprised that we had uh, roughly about 200 participants. Um, of course, everybody presented the work uh, with plastic photo slides very old-fashioned and um, during this conference it became clear that the community kind of decided we should have this event in the regular fashion so it turned out that the biotrans um, kind of uh, was decided to be held in the odd years um, you know the golden conference on biocatalysis started uh, in 1990 so we were kind of alternating between odd and even years and a little later on uh, the biocat uh, organized uh, by the university uh, hamburg hamburg uh, started in 2002 so these three conferences actually uh, i think they covered the field very nicely one conference in Europe, one conference um, in the States, alternating. And the BioCAT is, uh, has a little more kind of focus on uh, biotechnology process engineering, while the BioTrans is more oriented towards synthetic organic chemistry. Um, the main idea of the BioTrans is to react to novel trends, invite people um, from uh, emerging topics and of course to provide a stage for young talents and also to merge academia and industry. And uh, of course we, uh, the, the main goal is to promote the next uh, uh, generation in order to keep the field alive. Yeah, I also always hope that uh, the next generation is as excited at the Biotrends as I was uh, at my first. And uh, uh, talking uh, now a lot about how uh, the role of biocatalysis has changed in the recent decades, 
from a rather curiosity to an industrially relevant synthesis, synthesis technology. So basically the first uh, question we put on paper when we, we uh, deci uh, decided what we want to ask you was actually we have seen the Nobel prizes for transition metal uh, catalysis and in 2018 uh, Frances Arnold received the Nobel prize for her pioneering work in enzyme engineering. So we will figure what do you expect that we will ever see a Nobel Prize for biocatalysis as such or biocatalytic synthesis, uh, synthesis technology? And uh, also, would you have a candidate in mind? Um, to be frank, I think the chance of having a Nobel Prize in biocatalysis is low. Because if you check the rules of the Nobel Committee, uh, the award can only be devoted to a maximum of three awardees and uh, for a kind of single achievement, a single invention. And the field of biocatalysis has not been invented by one, two or three people. has been invented by, I don't know, 100, 200 people who added a lot of uh, ideas and achievements so it's a collective approach and it would be very, very hard for me. It would be impossible to nominate three awardees for the field of biotransformations. I think uh, the, the Nobel Prize uh, for Francis Arnold is probably as close as biocatalysis can get to this award. You were often the reviewer of scientific proposals and of institutions and you were assessing candidates for, for example, tenure-track positions. Share some advice with us. What are the things in a CV that convince you? Is it all about the impact factor and the Hirsch factor? <laughs> That's now a sticky question. Um, when, when I recall my participation in uh, reviewing panels, my experience is that external advisors in most cases go down to the facts. They read the details, they assess the candidate for the quality, ingenuity, creativity and uh, statistics like the Hirsch factor, impact factor and so on, they play a minor role. So on the one hand if you want to start a career or boost your career, you should definitely look for quality and not only for quantity. On the other hand, I've experienced that very often the um, committees which make the final decision if a person gets a tenure track or not is composed in part of academic bureaucrats. Uh, those are people who like to be in commissions, who like to show their importance at a certain department, and they do not know very much about the details of the field. And they tend to cling to impact factors, age factor, and, and they like to draw the statistics uh, to the front. And the problem is that very often they kind of finally make the decision. 
So I would not go too much for those statistical factors, but I would keep a little eye on it. Yeah, I think the next question goes a little bit in the same vein. So we noticed in your early career you published very often in Tetrahedron or Tetrahedron Asymmetry and I expect that the journal's impact and the journal's role was higher back then. In the meantime, many publishers recognized how much money there is in the publishing market and in the recent decade new journals were introduced almost on a monthly basis, decreasing the value of journals like for example the Tetrahedron journals. What are your thoughts on this publishing market and also what do you think about new formats such as preprints? Well, the, the publishing uh, market has changed dramatically over the past 25-30 years and it's, it's a disaster for science. Um, the move to create new electronic journals is driven by greed. Uh, simply Everything is, it's all about the money. Uh, previously, when I started uh, my academic career, you wrote the paper, uh, you took care that the paper was complete because you knew that the number of papers you published and the number of papers which had to be reviewed was limited. So consequently, the reviewers got few papers to work on, to check, and the reviews took time. So when you had lots of mistakes in a paper, it was slight, uh, completely rejected. Nowadays, with this kind of overflow in the number of papers, there is not enough time for reviewing. And it's a kind of habit that if uh, a paper is a lousy, uh, has a lousy style, you it's rejected, you try another journal. And at the 10th time, you probably slip through. And it's a waste of time, it's a waste of energy. And I would, uh, I would kind of vote for kicking out all those low impact factor journals because the quality is so low that it's not worth reading the paper. It's a disaster for science, it dilutes the results in a lot of blah blah. You will receive the Biotrans 2021 Senior Award at the Biotrans 2021 this summer. What will be the topic of your award lecture? Do you already have some ideas in mind? Uh, well, as mentioned before, luck and serendipity in enzyme discovery. Enzyme discovery is the topic. Well, good. Now we move to the next section, which are our quick surprise questions. Um, so I ask you for brief and spontaneous answers. I'm always most interested in the answer to my first question. So Kurt, what is your favorite enzyme or enzyme family? Carbolygases. Because I was never good at them. <laughs> All right. Uh, what do you expect from a good paper? Precise, short, complete. Could what is a scientific no-go for you, either in a paper or in a talk? 
incorrect or lacking citations. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't like these titles the first, because in 99% of the cases, when you dig down into the old literature, you find someone who has observed this before. Well, as someone who knows you, I know that you like to go back into the scientific, the old scientific literature whenever you read something like first, and then you show us some paper, this and that person demonstrated it already in 1958 or something. So, yes. Um, <laughs> um, uh, for instance, enzymes in organic solvents uh, were investigated by a scientist called Sum in the 1920s and uh, he was he he synthesized esters with pancreas powder and of course he didn't understand what was going on but he analyzed the outcome um butanoic acid ester butanoic acid smells awfully and the ester smells lovely he didn't have a gc but he had his nose so, uh, 1920s, that's 100 years ago. It's very nice. Maybe we should all follow your suggestion to read more old papers. They seem to be a goldmine of good ideas. Um, could, what was the nicest or the worst reviewer comment you ever got or you remember? The nicest was... Um, we had... Uh, we submitted a paper on the combination of a transition metal and enzyme catalyst. Now the enzyme died because uh, it didn't, uh, it was not compatible with the transition metal. And then we started to speculate that the transition metal modifies this and that tyrosine residue in the active site. It was pure speculation. And then one reviewer said, he wants to have a proof. He wants to have the inactive enzyme sequenced and analyzed whether our assumption is correct. Now this was a synthetic organic chemistry journal and this reviewer wrote, you know, for an organic chemistry group, this is a tough question to analyze and sequence the protein and figure out what went wrong with the protein and the comment was i know this group and they can do it <laughs> so we were lucky uh we got help from uh the medical university and uh we were lucky that our uh, assumption was correct yes i think that's also a nice example on how reviewing should work because that overall improved your paper um could how do you spend your time when you're not thinking about science Oh, I'm always out in nature, uh, bicycling, kayaking, skiing, mountaineering, and so on. As the biotrans unfortunately cannot happen in presence this year in Graz, um, we still like to transport some tiny bit of Graz. So um, I would be interested in what about Graz can you recommend to someone who Maybe not at this year's Biotrans, but at another meeting will visit Graz for the first time. Uh, Graz has a 
the largest medieval arms collection, they say in the world, whatever that means. Uh, it's very interesting how much energy was put into the development of a technology to kill your neighbor. And uh, that's really an interesting, uh, the, the Landeszeughaus, an interesting exhibition. And Graz has a racemic staircase uh, where two spiral staircases are kind of blended together. One is uh, the R enhancement and the other one the S enhancement. For a chemist uh, involved in biotransformations, this is kind of feature. Yeah, that's sightseeing through the eyes of a chemist. Um, well, Kurt, thanks a lot for joining us here. Thanks a lot for uh, telling us all these stories and uh, for sharing your experience with us. Uh, thanks for a nice interview. Thanks for the invitation. Also, thank you, Kurt, uh, from my side and goodbye, everyone. Also goodbye from me to you, dear listeners. Uh, thanks for listening to us again. And we invite you to join us also next time when we meet the next person who will have an invited lecture at the Biotrans 2021 conference. As always, please leave us any feedback or questions at the Biotrans Twitter account or just send us an email. So um, I want to talk about uh, the retirement party when this still was a thing we had for Kurt. Actually, um, since I was the last PhD student uh, uh, of Kurt, for me this was a very nice um, uh, observation because uh, there were also the first uh, generations of PhD students of Kurt and over the time and decades uh, people who followed. And it was nice to see, apparently Kurt had a big impact on many people uh, who did the PhD with him. And uh, yeah, you know, uh, when you're the last PhD student, you probably realize then that you're actually part of a big community. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons BY license which allows rework and redistribution as long as credit is given and any adaption is licensed under similar terms.